And if you've got your Bibles, um, I'd like to start this morning in the Gospel of John, okay? So we're going to do 1 John, but we're starting in the Gospel. Because, you know, he wrote both and they connect a lot. Let me pray real quick. Father, as we look at your word, we just ask you to bless us and um, encourage our hearts, Father, through the love of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So look at um, John chapter 5. Sometime in the distant future, we'll be studying John's gospel together. Not too distant, but we'll be getting there someday for more detail. But I just want to look at um, a very specific concept that we find here on the lips of Jesus. There's uh, a lot going on in John 5, but I just want to narrow the focus uh, uh, on the judgment that all men will face when they pass out of this life. There will be a judgment. You know that, right? You know, what does the average American believe about the judgment? It's, a, it's really an interesting question. I, I suspect that most people don't like to think about it very much and it doesn't cross their mind too often. They kind of push it out, except when some monstrous human does something really evil, you know, some horrible crime or something, and then everybody is all for the judgment that that person should not only face God but go to hell forever. I mean, that, people are kind of on the same page with that. but. It, it kind of satisfies the heart to think that this person's doomed before God because they were monstrously evil. But generally speaking, people don't think about the judgment at all, especially in regard to themselves, right? I mean, they don't think, they don't think about it. It's not something they're worried about. But, you know, the question is, do we just get born into this world and then live a few decades and then we're gone? I mean, what actually does happen when you step out of this life? People suppose we just sort of exist for a little while, and most people, at least in America, suppose that there's a God up there who um, wants us to be good, and this God smiles on nice people, and he frowns on bad people, and we, of course, are among the good people, so we're not too worried about that judgment thing. We, we think when we get there, it's going to be all okay, and no worries, you know, so um, that's not actually the case, though. Because human beings are fallen creatures and we live in a moral universe and we are sinful creatures in a moral universe. And God is a profoundly moral being, profoundly so. He is good, he's holy, he's pure, he's true, infinitely so about those things. So, and we're made in his image. So we have this profound moral capacity in fact, we're moral beings, and by that I don't mean we're good. I mean we're, we can't help but think in terms of right and wrong. You, you steal my stuff, I don't just say, that was inappropriate. Uh, it, it's wrong, right? Uh, you kill my family, that's wrong for you to do that. Those kind of things. So we're moral beings. We never think about, we don't really think about life in terms of useful and not useful. We think about it in terms of good and evil. We have to because we're wired that way. We're made in God's image, and he's a moral being, so we're moral beings. We think that way. Deep down, I think we know it makes sense that a moral creature like us is going to face some kind of accounting. There's got to be some kind of reckoning uh, for our behavior. Who God is and who we are actually points to an accounting in this life, a judgment of some kind. And the standard for judgment, the Bible says, is not ours. 
We want to measure ourselves by ourselves. But it's God who sets the standard. And God's standard isn't vague or watered down. And it's not based on averages or anything like that. It's based on his moral character and his moral law that was revealed to human beings through the Bible. And of course the Bible explicitly teaches that there is in fact a judgment. But the question is who's doing the judging? And that's where John 5 kind of comes in. John 5 actually tells us, and interestingly, it's not the Father, God, who's doing the judging. So let's pick it up at um, John chapter 5, verse 18, okay? I'm reading a New American Standard Bible, so yours should be similar if you don't have that. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, him being Jesus, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he actually healed somebody on the Sabbath, they thought that was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son. And shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these. So that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son. Even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Wow. Like I said, there's a lot there. But look more carefully at verse 21 through 24 there. The Son of God, Jesus, gives life to whom he wishes all judgment has been given to the Son. Why? Well, verse 23 says, so that all will honor the Son. And then there's a little Greek word there that means equivalent. Even as they'll honor the Son equally in the same way that people honor the Father. That is certainly a claim to being God right there. She's very clear about that. So the son is to have equal honors with the father and that means either Jesus is a blasphemer or he is the eternal son of God, the maker of all things. He can't, can't be anything else, one of those two. So you can see in verse 18 that they're already desiring to kill Jesus just for suggesting such a thing, this equality with the father, if you will, in, in terms of his being. But all men, according to John's gospel, are going to stand before the Lord Jesus when they die because he's the judge. So the end of life ushers us into a throne room where the king will sit in judgment. So for any sinner, that should be a terrifying prospect. Now let's turn to 1 John. And uh, we'll back up a little bit into what we said last Sunday and then let's move forward here. So last time we talked about the source of Agape love, the kind of Christian love that's unique and special to Christ. And a Christian grows in Christ-like love. Where does the growth come from? Well, we said that as we understand God's love for us, 
and we experience that love in our own hearts, we cannot withhold that kind of love from other people. It starts to spill over and we understand that this is absolutely central to the Christian life to have that kind of love for other people, Christ-like love. God's love is poured into us, it starts to change us and then we begin to live it out. We prioritize others above ourselves. So we can never love perfectly in this life. Anybody here a perfect? No, I don't, don't raise your hand. I don't know. But um, we, we can't, but we can, we can because we have the Holy Spirit and we have the love of God poured in our hearts, we can love truly, not perfectly, but truly. In fact, we can love truly in the manner that Jesus did. Um, that's significant. We can do that even to a point where it becomes a pretty significant part of who we are, even though we're, we're not perfect. And then its fruit starts to be seen, so much so that John says it can come to maturity in us. So many translations use the word perfected, but look at verse 12 of chapter 4. We're in 1 John chapter 4, the little letter John. Verse 12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And we discussed that word perfected. It can mean complete or mature, um, reaching its goal, that kind of thing. It, it becomes very full and real. That's the idea there. So it's not suggesting perfection in love on our part. Nobody's arrived at that perfect love. But I certainly know, I know believers who have made a lot of progress in that kind of love. I want to be like them. That, that, that love just exudes from them. God's love. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. The way we have this love is by continually grasping in our hearts, apprehending God's love for us and rejoicing in that love that he has for us. And then it can't help but spill over when we do that. Verse, uh, back up to verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4, it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then move down the page a little bit to verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So this abiding is a real daily walk with God that builds this love into us. That's what's going on there. So he's the vine, we're the branches. He, our life flows out of him. That love comes from him and it produces the fruit of love in us. That's the whole idea. But if you don't think much on the Lord, if you don't think about his love very much, that, that'll be a very meager bit of fruit you're putting out there. You won't produce very much fruit. You need to keep that abiding relationship active. That's what you want to do. So that's where we've been. Now, today we arrive at verse 17. Verse 17, uh, John connects this idea of Christ's love, which he's been talking about a lot. He connects it to the judgment, okay? What will happen when we stand before Christ? What will that day be like for you? What do you think? What will that day be like for you? Well, as we receive God's love and it moves us to love others, John has one word 
to describe your experience when you stand before Christ face to face. He's got one word for you. Confidence. Confidence. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. That's that divine love working itself out through us. As he is, so also are we in the world. And when we meet with him on that day, if that's true of us, we will have confidence in the judgment. That word confidence is such an interesting word. Parousia in Greek, it, 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 in, in Greek culture, it was the right to boldly tell anybody what you're really thinking. That was, that was a Greek cultural thing. You know that statue you made? It stinks. I mean, it's, that, it's that kind of thing. It's boldness. I mean, that, it's not always negative, of course. It's just this bold freedom that you have. And we have a confident boldness when we come into Christ's presence. Not arrogant. It's a humble confidence. Because it's, our confidence is in Christ. It's not in us. It's in Him. And so it's a humble confidence, not an arrogant one. So this isn't the first time John's used the word confidence that way. Way back in chapter 2, he also connected it to judgment. Chapter 2, verse 28, which says, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, there in 2.28, he's connecting confidence to abiding in the Lord. That's the ongoing relationship and active relationship we have with God. And sure enough, we see the concept of abiding again in chapter 4, even in, right, even in verse 16, right before that verse we just read, which immediately precedes John talking about confidence. So in his mind, he's linking these things together. If we abide in the Lord, we will have confidence, not shrink away from him when Christ comes. Now, back when we looked at verse 28 of chapter 2 together, um, we spent some time discussing whether the person that shrinks away is a believer or an unbeliever. Is it a, just a weak believer or an unbeliever who doesn't have much to show, you know? Um, and I said I don't think that is a believer for various reasons. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to. But he, I don't think that person knows Christ. However, even in that verse, we also mentioned that some believers... These are people that have squandered their opportunity to grow in Christ. They're a genuine Christian. They're born again. They have the Holy Spirit in them, but they haven't served him very well. They might have an experience on meeting Jesus, which will include some level of sadness. Um, Christ will be loving to every believer, but there's going to be a conversation, you know what I mean, <laughs> about um, our failures, and that has to happen. So that, I think, is going to happen. For them, Christ will be direct about the poor choices that were made by believers. So there'll be an accounting, there'll be a review, there'll be a conversation. Now the believer's experience and the unbeliever's experience will not overlap. They won't be on the same, they won't even be anywhere close to each other in terms of time. They won't be at the same place. We're not going to be in line with unbelievers <laughs> if there's a line. You know, God's infinite. We don't have to have a line necessarily. But, um, but you're not going to be there on the judgment day of unbelievers. And the judgment of Christians will be um, a different time and a different place of unbelievers. Unbelievers are going to stand before Christ. In fact, would you throw up that thing for me? So there's, there's basically several points of judgment. And I put this chart up. 
there. Can you kind of see that? Okay, so unbelievers are going to stand before Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom, his thousand year reign on earth. That's when unbelievers will be raised to judgment. So right now they're sitting in Sheol, the Hades, and they're waiting for that time. It's a long way off. And, and right after that, if you read the book of Revelation, it gives way to the new heavens and the new earth. Church age believers, us, are going to be judged. We're going to stand before Christ after the church is removed from this world, what is commonly called the rapture. After that, it'll be after that, but before Christ comes back. So it says Bema up there. <laughs> See that with a little question mark? The reason it has a question mark is because it doesn't say in the Bible when that happens. I assume it happens right away when the rapture happens, but it does, we don't know that for an absolute fact, but that's the, that's the hint. So church age believers are, will be judged after the church is removed from the world, but before Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. So we'll be up there with him in heaven, right? So there's the church age, there's the rapture, there's the great tribulation, and then there's Messiah's kingdom. Christians are judged after the rapture, but before the kingdom, Unbelievers are judged after the kingdom. And that's called the great white throne judgment. Does that make sense? I hope so. So church age, church age Christians judgment is often called the Bema seat. That's where that strange word is on that chart. With the question mark. Bema seat judgment. Because Bema is the New Testament Greek word for judgment. Judgment place. In Greco-Roman culture the Bema seat is where the judge would sit in a court and decide somebody's fate. Now uh, it's true in a legal proceeding. Pontius Pilate is described as sitting on the Bema seat when Jesus was brought before him. He judged Jesus, right? That was his imperial job there. But the same term Bema is also used of athletic contests, the games where awards are handed out by judges. So the judges aren't condemning anybody, they're just giving medals out, you know. Here's your gold medal, here's your silver medal. In those days they gave you a little thing to wear on your head, a little wreath of victory or whatever. Um, so there's um, that kind of thing. The judgment seat of Christ will be the Bema seat judgment more like the athletic competition thing than it is a prisoner before a judge because there's not a word in the New Testament anywhere about believers being condemned in any way before and at the judgment seat of Christ the place where we go to stand before Christ is not a place of condemnation it actually can't be now some of you know why it can't be is some verse popping into your head like Romans 8 yeah yeah you got it actually yeah. <laughs> Romans 8 verse 1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you will not be condemned on that day. You can't be because we were promised that in Christ there is no condemnation. Why, why isn't there condemnation? What if I'm a lousy Christian? Because Christ bore our condemnation. He was condemned for us. Even if you're a lousy Christian, he was condemned for you. So as far as divine justice goes, God's justice, we are clean in the eyes of God because of the blood of Christ. It covers all of our sins. We are innocent before the law, just as Christ was innocent before his accusers. Truly innocent. So the punishment he received is the punishment that was due to us, and it's been paid. And you could mark it paid in full, right? So... Our sins are covered. First Peter 
chapter 1 verse 4 says we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So a, a believer in Jesus should never fear God's condemnation ever. It shouldn't enter your mind. It can't happen. And we're talking about being excluded from the kingdom. That cannot happen. That place in heaven is reserved for us in Christ. We're, in a sense we're already there because we're in him. And, and Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2 where he, where he says God not only made us alive in Christ but by his mercy and his great love. These are Paul's words, Ephesians 2.5. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow. So positionally speaking we're already there with Christ, in Christ. So salvation is a gift and it can't be revoked. God will not revoke that gift. And yet some Christians are afraid of the judgment because they don't really understand the promise that we do have. Maybe they've been taught that salvation is conditional. There's some churches that teach that, that you can lose your salvation. I don't see how you can read Ephesians there and think that. Or 1 Peter. And some people just have a hard time believing their sins are forgiven. They're haunted by their sins. They're plagued with fear. What will, what will happen with them? What do they need? What will help them? They need a good dose of the gospel. They need to remember what the gospel promises. Because that is so clear. Jesus paid it all. Now other people are, are by, just kind of by nature sort of self-doubting people. They worry that their faith isn't strong enough. You don't have to worry about that either. Is Jesus talked about mustard seed faith. Ever seen a mustard seed? If you look at a sentence in your Bible and look at a period, that's about the size of a mustard seed. It's really tiny. Really tiny. You just need enough faith to put your trust in Christ. If you confess Jesus as your creator, your king, the son of God, and believe in your heart that he's your savior, that he rose from the dead to save you, then you don't ever have to fear for your salvation. Ever. It's not even on the table. He holds you. Grace has saved you. Not your performance. So when it comes to the Bema seat and the believer's rewards, there's a legitimate concern there. We could even say fear because maybe we haven't served Christ well in our lives. There will not be condemnation. But there is going to be an accounting. So if you're worldly or if you fall in love with um, with the world you're going to pursue other things instead of Christ even though you have a genuine faith in Christ but you get caught up in other stuff people lead you astray whatever if you fail in love of the brethren for example which we've been talking about for weeks and weeks now because John talks about it so much your reward will be less that's what the Bema Seat judgment is about rewards and Jesus tells a lot of parables about people who have lesser rewards than other people uh, we want to hear the well done Thou good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. But some people might not hear that. But they'll still go to heaven. They'll be happy forever and all of that. But um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.15 Some are saved as through fire. Now that doesn't mean roasting in purgatory. <laughs> for thousands of years. Doesn't mean that. 
There's actually no such thing as purgatory. Did you know that? I hope so. Where the fire purges you of your stains. Now in the Middle Ages, purgatory could last hundreds of thousands of years. That's what the Catholic Church taught. Now it's about 15 minutes. And modern Catholics are a little, little softer on purgatory. But, um, but that's not true. For a Christian, all sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Nothing is left untaken care of. You don't need to be purged. Nothing has been left undone with regard to our salvation. But if you look carefully at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the fire is, is clearly a metaphor for explaining um, the examination of our works. It's, it's not what will happen to our souls. We're not going to be burned in the fire. It pictures, Paul's picturing your Christian walk and he's picturing the foundation which is Christ's salvation and you're building on that foundation. Your life is building a structure of some kind, right? A, a house or something. The foundation is Christ, so the foundation is secure. And the foundation is unchanging. It's not going to change. But what are we building on it? And you should always ask your yourself the question, what kind of structure am I building on the foundation that Jesus laid for me? Is it a, is it a chicken coop made out of cardboard? Or is it a nice beautiful stone house that's going to stand? So here's what Paul actually says, 1 Corinthians 3.12, he says, Now if any man builds on, a, on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it, the day we stand before Christ. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So you see the fire isn't for us, the fire is for the building that we're building, that our, our life's work, if you will, how we serve Jesus with our life. And he's looking for what's substantial and real and lasting. So obviously the wood, hay, and stubble isn't going to do that well when the fire is put to it. But precious stones and metal and um, strong stones, are, are, that's going to survive. The, the wood, hay, and stubble is going to... Be burned up in a flash. Maybe people are going to go there, and I know people like this that I'm sure it's going to happen to. Maybe it'll happen to me, but um, they, got, they got so much stuff they want to tell Jesus they did for him. And it's so full of themselves that, poof, it's going to be all gone. Their works. Only the more substantial things are going to pass the fire test. The fire test. And what is lasting will determine what our rewards are. How we'll be... Um, the things will be given to do in heaven. The kinds of circumstances will be in heaven. Heaven's going to be great for everybody. Nobody's going to be out that's a believer in Jesus. But Jesus talks about authority. He talks about positions. You know, God is an authoritative being. He's got rankings of angels and all kinds of stuff going on. There's things like that. But what is lasting is anything that's done for Christ in truth and in love. That's what's lasting. That's what he's looking for in your building. So your life should be all about that, serving Christ in truth and love. So we're, we're ambassadors for Jesus. Paul describes us as ambassadors. So how we conduct ourselves, you know, when we send an ambassador to some country, we're expecting, not anymore, but we're expecting them to represent us in, uh, you know, the way they talk, their, their demeanor, their wisdom, and all of that stuff. We're, they're not supposed to be going over there messing things up and being idiotic and being a drunken fool and all that kind of stuff. I know ambassadors do all that, but... Uh, they're not, it's not what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be examples of our kingdom, right? And we're supposed to be examples of Christ's kingdom. 
You might, might remember the warning that James gives in the Bible to teachers. Let not many of you become teachers, brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur, what? A stricter judgment. So I've got a stricter standard I'm going to be judged by just because I'm standing up here. And if I mess with the Bible and tell you my own opinions and just throw stuff out there, what I'm feeling about today, and I make stuff up out of thin air and I put God's name on it, I'm, I'm going to have a good talking to. My reward's going to be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. I'm going to have a lot of wood, hay, and stubble in my building. It's going to look like a bombed out cathedral if I do that. <laughs> Teachers have a very strict accounting because we represent God's word to people. We represent the gospel to people. We represent Christ to people. So if we're pursing, pushing our personal agendas or we're being hypocrites, that's, that's huge. That's huge. So there should be a healthy fear there of making a mess of it. That fear I have. I really fear making a mess of it. So that keeps me on the good path. But that's not a salvation issue. It's a rewards issue. A believer should not fear Jesus so much. You know what we really should fear is disappointing Jesus. I mean that's, that's really what it should be. My fear is to disappoint him. To, to fail in some significant way. But if you're a believer who fears the day of judgment. And there are believers that fear the day of judgment. You have to counsel those people frequently. You need to make victory over your fear. You need to make that your spiritual goal. I'm, I'm going to get victory over my fear of God on Judgment Day. That's really your spiritual battleground if you have that kind of fear. Because you shouldn't have it. And you've got a lot of powerful weapons on your side. You've got the gospel. Lord, I do believe. Alright, then First Peter chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, those things are all coming into play. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's not going to condemn you. You're protected by the power of God for a salvation to be revealed. You, all of that is true. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the word of God that reminds you over and over again of God's love and what Christ accomplished for you. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8? Let me just read that for you real quick. Romans 8.15 You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba, which is, means dad, father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's, that's, that's not scary. That's incredible. That's wonderful. And then there's Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. But delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him. Give us all things. Children of God. You won't stop being a child of God. Because you blew it. That's not going to happen. So we need to grasp God's love for ourselves and we need to grow in that love. Here's where verse 18 in 1 John 4 comes in. We're only doing 17 and 18 today so hang on, we're almost done. <laughs> there is no fear in love but perfect love, this mature love casts out fear because fear involves punishment 
and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So there's your challenge. If you fear God's judgment, you're not perfected in love. You need to embrace God's love more, understand it more deeply, apply it to yourself. Believe him when he says he's accomplished this salvation for you and that your faith alone is what grants you that that thing so that this and then this love will start working out in you and start moving towards other people and you're going to that fear is going to get less and less and less fear fear is an expectation of something bad right it's a, an expectation of punishment of not being welcomed by the lord that's the fear there but for the one who knows god's love and is building a life on that love that fear isn't there because we know god's love so well we know that despite our weaknesses and our failures he's going to usher us into his kingdom we have to build our life on that love and that's where fear gets cast out. So the believer anticipates a welcome, not because we're perfect, but because his love is so great and what Christ accomplished is so great. So, but it has to become real to us and, and a part of who we are. So keep growing both in grasping God's love for you and in your love for other people. And if you're doing that, those fears will diminish. Don't hold on to sins. Sins breed doubt. That's what they do. Keep accounts with God short. Quickly repent when you blow it. Don't hang on to things. And your fear of judgment will become less and less and less. And soon you'll find rest. And you're meant to find rest. Jesus invited you to find rest for your souls by putting your trust in him. That's, what you're spo that's supposed to be your natural condition as a Christian. So if we serve Christ out of love, we will not need to fear the day of accounting. Now, one thing I haven't talked about, and I'll just kind of summarize this real quick and then we'll be done, but we haven't talked about fear more generally. Some people read those verses and they try to apply them to, the, the verses in 1 John 4 are talking about fear of judgment. Can they be applied in any way to general fears? Like what if you're a fearful person and everything makes you freak out? What if you're just that kind of person? And some people are like that. It's just sort of our natural state for some of us. I think you can make application from this verse to your typical fears, the fears of the world in certain ways. So the, the question would be, does, does this perfect love, this mature love, this complete love cast out fear in other scary situations in life? Not just Judgment Day, but does it apply to other things? And I think, yeah, sometimes. Fear is actually natural. It's actually a gift, right? Fear keeps me from running through traffic. <laughs> Fear keeps me from standing there and watching my house when it's surrounded by brush fires. Oh, this is beautiful. Oh, it's getting warm. Fear makes me run away or jump in the pool or whatever, you know. So fear has a positive side to it. It, it, it motivates us to self-preservation. There's good fear. But we should not be ruled by fear in our Christian lives, in our personal lives. We shouldn't be always fearful if we know the Lord. Not everything should scare us. Obviously, some people have been traumatized in various ways and they have a lot of extra fears they have to deal with. That isn't easy. But I do believe that progress against fear can be achieved for the believer if he or she comprehends and again dwells on God's love because he protects us. He looks out for us. He's sovereign. Dwelling on that love and being thankful can go a long way to reducing fear. And I think you just got to focus deeply on the fact that God is sovereign over everything and this sovereign God loves you. 
So even if really bad things happen to you, the end is great. You get to be with him forever. The God who is sovereign over all things loves you. Well, he sure does make life hard sometimes. I know, I know he does. Very hard. Sometimes. Very hard. We read from Romans 8 just a bit ago. Let me, this is how Romans chapter 8 actually ends. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever horrors there are in the world, they can't separate you from God's love. Whatever the monsters out there want to do or whatever your circumstances are, they can't separate you from God's love. That should reduce your fear. We can't be separated from God's love no matter what life throws at us, no matter what's going on. And life can throw some very painful things at us. There's no doubt about that. Scary things. But the one who loves us is actually over all of that. It's all happening by his permission. So he's got a divine purpose in that. You have to just trust that. And that's where the, the words from Psalm 23 kind of kick in, right? You guys know the most famous psalm of all. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's how that ends. Well, there's nothing scary about that. <laughs> so the conclusion, the conclusion of a Christian's sojourn on earth is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So whatever happens here, that's the ultimate end. If you think about your life, your existence as kind of a story, and we all have our story, the book of me, <laughs> right? That kind of idea. All of our years on earth are, are the preface to the book. All your entire life, you can live 90 years, 100 years, that's just the preface. That's before you get to the story. Because the real story starts when we see Jesus face to face and it goes on forever. And it's beautiful. And there's nothing that can hurt us with regard to that. The real story is eternity. For all who belong to Christ, it's going to be a wonderful story. So why be consumed with fear if that's true? The preface, I had a really hard life. The book, which is a really thick book. It's glory, wonders, love eternally. The presence of God forever. That's the book. So we shouldn't fear. This week somebody that was up here singing posted a quote online from Johnny Erickson Tata. And I think of, uh, um, you know, her... I got to see her when she was quite young, because I'm so old, but... Um, she was giving a talk, but anyway, that this, uh, you know, a quadriplegic from her teen years, and she's still kicking. She's probably 70 or something now. I don't know how old she is, but this is what she said recently. She said, God doesn't, God's love doesn't vacillate according to how many victories you have over sin or how many times you use his name in your prayers. His love for you goes deeper than mere attention and surface infatuation. That's our kind of love. Let the matchless love of God sweep away your doubts and fears. You already have God's attention. 
and you will never lose it. Those are just great words. So cling to that, cling to that, and then you can live with confidence. That's John's word. That's the word he wants you to walk out of here with, confidence. Let's pray. Our most sovereign Lord, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in you. Your goodness and loving kindness follow us always, even into the valley of the shadow of death. So Father, work your love in us so that our fears will fade. Let us understand that we are your children, chosen by you, saved by you. That alone is a cause for so much joy, not fear. So keep our hearts in the gospel of your love. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.